0: Hello, I'm Alec Avdekov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. On today's podcast, I am once again breaking the narrative to have a discussion with fellow podcaster John Viscardo from the podcast Generals and Napoleon. I found this podcast a while back and I enjoy the heck out of it. He is a great podcaster, and he is incredibly nice. I had a wonderful time having this discussion with him, and I hope I'll have more discussions with him in the future. I also created a Patreon-only episode about Frederick the Great's sister, Wilhelmina, to paying members. So join up right now if you want to listen to the episode. However, if my podcast makes it up to 20 ratings on Apple Podcasts, I will make the episode free to listen to the public. But remember that I would love to hear from you, whether on social media, email, or whether you choose to support me on Patreon. The links to all of those, including the Generals and Napoleon podcast, is in the show notes below. Anyway, today's episode, we compare and contrast the two great leaders of Frederick the Great and Napoleon. The next voice you will hear is my own, introducing John Viscardo from the Generals and Napoleon podcast. So today on The Life and Times of Frederick the Great, we have a very interesting guest. Uh, Why don't you
1: introduce yourself? Hi, I'm John Viscardo, and I have a podcast called Generals and Napoleon.
0: All right. So today we're going to be discussing a a fairly interesting topic, in my view. So in the early modern period of Europe, we have a whole bunch of different figures. And I would argue the most famous of all these figures is definitely not Frederick the Great. That would be you, Napoleon. <laughs> uh, so what what, what, uh, what, got you interested into the time period of, of Napoleon and and his generals too?
1: Yeah, no, I, I got interested in Napoleon. I used to be a, a high school teacher here in Florida in the United States. And, you know, we do world history and we kind of touch on Napoleon. And what I used to do is just show a silhouette of Napoleon with his hat and his coat. And even the kids mm-hmm. like the ninth graders or, you know, the younger kids... Almost all of them could tell me that was Napoleon, and that's like without any really basic history. They just knew that that was the look of some guy named Napoleon who was from France and you know won a bunch of battles. So after I taught it for a couple of years at the high school level, I kind of got more into it. I started ordering books on Amazon, and then I had finally like this huge pile of books. and My wife said to me, "Why don't you do something? You know, you're just you're, re- you're buying all these books and they're just sitting here." So I was like, "All right, well, perhaps I could do a podcast," but. I didn't want to do it just about Napoleon. I wanted, you know, obviously he had the help of a great army to get him to the elevated status that he was. So I wanted to do it more about the men of Napoleon versus just Napoleon himself. That's that's a very good point. I mean,
0: we often think with these great men of history that they were the only ones doing things. But no, Even even with Frederick the Great, it's the bureaucracy, it's the logistics, it's the, the 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 men underneath him that get little credit, but do the work that moves history.
1: Yeah. You know, whether it's the private foot soldier at the bottom of the ranks or, you know, like we were talking earlier, one of his generals that really performed miracles. Frederick the Great had, a, had a, one of the best armies in the world under him. And I think that needs to be said that he didn't do it all by himself.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you about this later on in the discussion, but there was a very famous moment in the Battle of Molwitz where Frederick won a battle without actually being there. And, and we'll get into why that is. Yeah, was. yeah. I can't wait. How do you think Napoleon, his reign, how do you think it was influenced by Frederick the Great?
1: You know, that's that's a great start. You know, I have a quote that Napoleon used after he defeated Prussia. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but You know, he defeated Prussia in 1806, and he visited the tomb of Frederick the Great, and he had great respect for him. He read about his campaigns. He learned a lot studying his his military victories and losses. And when he went into the tomb with his generals, he said, quote, hats off, gentlemen. If he were alive, we wouldn't be here today. So I think that, that just shows the reverence that Napoleon had for Frederick the Great. You know, his abilities to you know, attack quickly and to fight armies bigger than his and to build alliances with the smaller German states when needed. I think Napoleon kind of modeled himself as a French version of Frederick the Great and just kind of expanded upon his ideas.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I also remember that uh, I think it was Napoleon that counted Frederick the Great as one of the, the great captains of history or something like that.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I said, you know, Napoleon was a voracious reader and he had, he recommended his marshals read and study uh, Frederick's campaigns as well. Mm-hmm. He wanted his marshals to really invest themselves in the art of Warcraft and being the best they possibly could be because they were a part of the quote unquote grand Armee. Mm-hmm. So he wanted his generals and marshals to really take pride in their profession and learn about not necessarily emulate what people had done previously, but at least learn about battles that have been fought on that ground in periods before, you know, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era, because a lot of Napoleon's battles took place in Germany or around Germany and Poland. So it made sense to study battles that have been fought there before.
0: Yes, you, you bring up a, a good point there. So oftentimes historians have hyper-focused on just the military aspects of the men, but it does make sense. Do you think there are underrated aspects of Napoleon? And I can get into uh, underrated aspects of Frederick the Great, the, of, of their reigns that we should focus more on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Napoleonic Code, which brought standardization of legal practices in France and to Europe as a whole, you know, that's one of his underrated contributions. Like Frederick, he centralized, you know, the administration of government. Napoleon installed higher education systems a Central Bank. Road on sewer systems, like he was really a unique individual because he could think about different projects in his brain. Like he could talk about the upcoming battle against the Austrians one second, and then how he wanted to revamp the sewer system in Paris the next second. So I think Frederick too brought some stability to the Prussian state, and obviously he enlarged the Prussian state. You know, taking over Silesia, if I got that right. But he also brought you know in a chaotic time where you know mm-hmm. Poland's being partitioned and yeah. There's all these succession wars. You know, Frederick was on the throne for how many years? Quite a while, right? Forty six years, I do believe. Yeah. So so I think, you know, Napoleon and Frederick brought some sense of stability to their country.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very true. Now, me personally, I think one of the most underrated aspects of Frederick the Great's reign, and, and this will come completely out of left field, is potatoes. All right. Do you know this story? No, please. Enlighten me. Okay. So I I do want to make this possibly a future episode. But uh, Frederick the Great helped introduce potatoes into Germany. Since the potato is not native to Europe, it's native to America, it was brought over in the Colombian exchange. And the peasants refused to eat Mm. potatoes because it, I mean, raw potatoes, they they tastes like nothing without like salt and you know what frederick did oh he had a, a guard detachment guard the this crop of potatoes in the royal gardens and said you cannot steal these potatoes or else and so he used reverse psychology to make sure that potatoes became the most popular plant plant-based uh, in in the part of the prussian diet and as far as that goes, uh, potatoes are fairly nutritious during during that period.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And like these armies, they had to live off the land, so yeah, why not plant some potatoes while you're at yeah. it? I did not know that story. Yeah, yeah no, if you go
0: to Frederick the Great's grave. They some so on the headstone, it, it's just a flat headstone. Sometimes you can see like people putting potatoes down on his grave.
1: <laughs> I did not know that story. I did see a great quote, though, from Frederick. Great things are achieved only when we take great risks. So whether whether he was doing it on the battlefield or in the gardens, apparently, he was taking great risks. So I think that's that's a great story. I didn't know that about potatoes. Yeah, he's, he's quite an individual, this Frederick the Great. And I would say that's one difference between him and Napoleon. He was able to keep his throne, while well, you know Napoleon lost his throne. Obviously, I think also there is a great comparison there, where you know Frederick was up against the wall, kind of like Napoleon was in eighteen fourteen, and there was a switching of alliances. I believe uh, Russia defected from the alliance against Frederick the Great at the last second, yeah, and that helped secure his throne. So I think maybe Napoleon had Frederick the Great in mind, where he was, you know, defending Paris and defending France in eighteen fourteen, and hoping for. A switch of alliances to save his bacon
0: well one can argue
1: with the uh uh, was it the
0: frankfurt proposals it was the uh last chance for napoleon to keep his throne
1: yeah and he turned it down yeah yeah but but yeah no I, i there are a lot of underrated aspects of both men and i going back to your original question i think a lot of similarities but there are some some contrasts as well definitely
0: so I'm going to skip a little bit to this. Do you think Napoleon deserves the same
1: epithet as Frederick? Should Napoleon be the great? You know, I kind of like that he isn't. I like it's just, it's Napoleon. You know, like Prince or Madonna. Like they, they don't need like a, an ad addition to the name. People know, that, you know, and not that he was great all the time. He did some very despicable things that we could get into. But, you know, he, he, he doesn't need that moniker, I don't think. Like you just say the name, Napoleon you know, Peter the Great, Alexander the Great, you know, Frederick the Great. I think it's almost like if you need that, that extra, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, adjective on your name, you're not truly that great. And I think Napoleon was one of the top five people of all time in history. Uh, yeah, I mean, they could add it. I, I certainly think he did some great things, but I kind of like it's just, you know, Napoleon. It's it, it Nothing more needs to be said. It's just, boom, the one name.
0: I was expecting to disagree with you about this topic, but I agree. Yeah, it's, it's uh, he's just well known.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you know, like, like like I was telling you earlier with my students, like if you just put you know a bicorn hat on a silhouette and you, you put a picture of it, eight out of ten people in the world will probably tell you, oh, that's Napoleon. Like they don't they don't need to know anything more about the picture. They could just look at it and say, oh yeah, it looks like Napoleon. And I think you have mm-hmm. that kind of brand recognition, and that's something I think both men had in common. They they knew the value of. Marketing and branding, and Frederick had this great army, but I think it was like one of the smallest states in Europe, right? They had the fourth largest army or something, and it was one of the smaller states in in Europe. Yeah, the Russian
0: population in 1756, I believe, was 4.5 million, and you compare that: 20 million with France, uh, I think a little over or under 15 million in Austria, 20 million in Russia. Mm-hmm and they're all fighting against Prussia's little
1: 4.5 million people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did wonders with that with that number. So, you know, kudos to Frederick. I mean, that's just incredible. Which brings me to another question. Which monarch
0: do you think was more successful?
1: That is a good question. I would probably say just based on if the if the de- definer of success is keeping your throne and crown, then I would say Frederick. If the definer of success is territory gained and controlled, you know, by all means, Napoleon, you know, at one point his empire stretched from Spain to uh, the gates of Moscow, you know, it was a huge territory. Uh, Now, obviously it didn't last. I mean, he was basically in power for 15 years, uh, where, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Frederick was in power for decades. So it, it just depends on your definer of success. I don't know. I think just based on history in terms of, like we were talking earlier, marketing and brand, Napoleon was just because he's more well known. But I think in terms of not only being a great general, but also knowing when to say when as a diplomat, like Frederick didn't, he wasn't at battle at war all the time. Like he knew when he had to make peace, rebuild his armies, kind of like you were saying before when Napoleon, he didn't want to have any kind of peace that was dictated upon him. He wanted to dictate the peace. So that's why he turned down those, those peace offerings from the allies. He wasn't going to shut everything down until he had won. And I think Frederick kind of did that better. He knew when to fight and when to have a peace treaty so he could rebuild his army or or just focus on domestic affairs for a little while before going back into war. Yeah,
0: that's that's a very good point. Do you think if Napoleon didn't turn down the Frankfurt proposals, how we would, and, and he would have stayed on, on the throne, how do you think history would have judged him then?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, if he would have just accepted the peace Offerings and kept France at its pre revolutionary borders. I don't know. I don't, I think he was just a man of action. It wasn't in his nature to just sit still. So I think even if he would have accepted them, he probably would have just, you know, reloaded his army, refit his army, and gone back on the war path like, you know, a few months later. He just, it wasn't his nature to just sit quietly in France and, and not try and better himself or his country. So I, and not that he was from France, obviously, he's from Corsica, but I think. Overall, yeah, I think in the long run he would have been defeated, just maybe at a later date. You know, instead of eighteen fourteen or eighteen fifteen, probably eighteen eighteen or eighteen twenty when he went back on the war path. He just he was not a man to just sit still.
0: Yeah, uh, a reverse Clausewitz. Instead of having war being the extension of politics
1: through other means, right?
0: Yeah, he yeah. he was the use of politics to extend war.
1: Right. I was going to say he had a few eras of peace after Marengo. He had a you know Treaty of Amiens. Emile, he had a little bit of peace uh, right there, and then. But based on the peace negotiations, uh, f- through what I've read, he didn't seem like he wanted to make that peace last, though. No, he didn't, and, and nor did the British. The British went back on it almost as soon as the ink was dry on the contract. So, both sides were not fulfilling the stipulations of the contract. Or the peace agreement, and then briefly from like eighteen oh nine at the Battle of, of Vagram, they, they had a peace treaty with Russia and Austria, but they, you know he was still fighting in Spain even during that quote unquote peace time. So, yeah, he wasn't one to just sit still and and have a a period of peace in his in his reign. So, yeah, that's that's a good question. I I don't know the answer to it, but that's the best I could say is he probably would have been back on the war path by eighteen sixteen or seventeen, and. It took all of Europe to finally defeat him, right? So the Seventh Coalition basically has no allies at this point. It's just France versus the world. Yes. And still, he gave a good battle at Waterloo before he ultimately had to abdicate a second time. Yep. And thanks to a Marshall forwards, Marshall Blucher. That's right, Marshall Blucher. Yeah. Yeah. O- old Marshall forwards. Yeah. Good call. If Frederick the Great lit the flame of German nationalism, I think. Napoleon fanned it because all the German states basically had to unite to kick this guy, Napoleon, out of Germany, you know, and I think that caused a lot yeah. of rivalries to go away because they had a common enemy, which was Napoleon. So they kind of merged together into kind of a unified German state to get him out of there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's called the War of uh, German Liberation for a reason. I completely correct. agree with you. But yeah, correct. The, the ironic thing about Frederick the Great, he was considered this German hero, but he hardly spoke a word of German. He, he he spoke French and and when he wrote ger- in German, he was almost dyslexic in, in that case. He he didn't understand the grammar, and right. um, one one can argue that he was more so along the lines of Louis the Fourteenth, France, than a minor German prince. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, I do want to point out that both men lost battles. Like I think there's this misconception that. They both were undefeated and crushed everyone in their path. Like, you know, they lost battles, like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Frederick the Great actually ran away from a battle mm-hmm. that he thought was lost. I forget which one it was. but uh, Yeah, Molvitz. Yeah. yeah, that's
0: a Moldavis, battle, yeah. Yeah. which leads me to another question. Um, so one of my most favorite moments in Frederick the Great's reign is probably the Battle of Moldovitz. His right wing in the battle, his cavalry, is Mm -hmm. being routed from the field. He looks at his army as almost being destroyed. Uh, His field marshal, Marshal Schwerin, he taps him on the shoulder, says, Majesty, you have to leave the battle. Uh, Not not the exact words, but anyway. You have to leave the battle. He flees, almost gets captured, and Mm -hmm. he wins the battle. His his infantry reforms, defeat the Austrian cavalry on, on their right, and they press forward like moving walls. And that, that's, that's one of my favorite <laughs> moments in, in Frederick the Great's reign. Now, was there a time that a marshal of France saved Napoleon's bacon in, in a similar vein as that?
1: Yeah, numerous times. I don't know in that exact example, but there was a few battles where if it weren't for the actions of a certain marshal, Napoleon certainly would have lost. The first occurred in uh, Arcola in uh, Napoleon's early campaign in Italy. He was trying to rally his troops uh he was waving a flag on a bridge and his troops were getting pushed back by the austrians and he actually got knocked into this marsh by the fleeing troops and he was like really like a deep bog like and his aides couldn't get him out of the marsh and marshal lon who wasn't a marshal yet uh, marshals didn't come until later but colonel lon came across this scene he was in the hospital and he came rushing back to the front and he saw the aides struggling to pull Napoleon out of this bog. And there was an Austrian cavalry attack coming. So Lon launched his troops in between Napoleon's aides and this cavalry attack to kind of stall them until the aides could pull Napoleon out of this bog. So that was one where literally Napoleon would have been either captured or killed if it weren't for uh, Lon's action there. Another example, at Battle of Eylau in 1807. Napoleon's on the warpath. He's pushed the Prussians to the brink. And the Russians finally arrive, well, not arrive, but they're kind of retreating in this cold winter. It's almost like, you know, around Christmas time. But they finally turn at bay to face Napoleon. And Napoleon, his men were stretched to their supply limit, and he wasn't in a good position to attack this Russian army. And it was a terrible snowstorm happened right in the middle of it. One of his best generals, Marshal Ogeroo, got wounded and his entire corps got destroyed by cannon fire. So it weakened all Napoleon's center line, and they actually were getting pushed back. And Napoleon was close to getting captured. And his cavalry leader, this flamboyant guy, uh, his name's Marshal Murat, took 10,000 cavalry troopers and just slammed them into the side of the Russian army. Now, it turned out to be a draw, basically, I But it saved Napoleon again from certain, not certain, but definitely it would have been a loss if it weren't for Marshal Murat. And then the last example was... Marshal Ney's rear guard defense in the invasion of Russia in 1812. It went started okay. You know, Napoleon got the Moscow, he captured the capital, but they had to retreat and it was like one of the worst winters ever. They had no food, they were starving, and Marshal Ney really saved the army's bacon by his brilliant rear guard actions. He was actually cut off at one point and he had to like sneak around the Russian army over, you know, frozen ice rivers to get back to Napoleon, so I think in at least three cases, Napoleon was saved by his generals and marshals.
0: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, I always thought that it was uh, the, the course of Napoleon's rise and fall is very interesting. The basis of Napoleon's success is the speed of his troops in Italy, fighting and maneuvering around his enemy, like running rings around them, essentially. Correct. By the time you get into Russia, the army of 1812 is definitely not the army you had in uh, 1805.
1: No, and in, in, in Italy you could live off the land. You know, it's a sunny country, you know, there's bountiful harvests you can get into as a soldier. If you're in the plains of Russia in the winter, I mean there's nothing. There's nothing to find forage wise. You can't just grab stuff from peasants. There are no peasants. I mean, there are very few. And so I think in that situation, you're right, the army wasn't the same as the one that was in Italy with Napoleon in seventeen nineties, but it was still a very hard time, especially with so many men to feed. They went in with five hundred thousand troops. I mean, that's 500,000 stomachs you got to fill up with lumbering wagon trains, which he didn't have to worry about in Italy. They were living off the land. He didn't need a a baggage train of food and supplies behind him. So it was just a very different scenario than what he had in Italy.
0: Yeah, I like to bring that point up because logistics is so undervalued in history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you can point back certain decisions people made in history just due to logistics itself. Correct. Correct. And I think what's interesting is that Napoleon fought on all these different types of geographies. But if you look at Frederick the Great's reign, there's like two or three battles in just the same area. And they're they're marching all across Prussia and Bohemia and all these places just been trodden all over. And do you think it's fair that you can consider Napoleon a better all geography
1: commander. Yeah, I do. I, I you, that, And that's a good point. You know, whenever Frederick was in trouble, like I noticed he would pull back to Berlin or pull back to his lines of communication, and get his supplies. Napoleon went to Egypt and conquered Cairo. He was in Madrid and conquered Spain. He was in Moscow and he was far, far away. And, you know, the farther away you are from your capital city, your strength projection, your, you know, it's called lack of strength gradient, The farther you are away from your supply depots, the less strength you're going to have just because you're not going to have bullets, cannonballs, food, horses, all the stuff you need to carry out war. So yeah, in that regard, I will will say that Napoleon was a bit more effective than Frederick. Obviously, that was a little bit later. So maybe they had some better technology with the standardization of cannons and standardization of muskets where they could replace parts easier than they did in the 1740s and 1750s. And the ability to raise troops as well. Correct. 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 Um, but yeah, no, it's it, it was. It was hard to supply your army on, on the move. I don't I don't care what part of Europe you were in. I mean, Spain had some of the worst terrain in any part of Napoleon's empire. Just all the mountainous ridges he had to go over and get to Portugal. It was just a difficult way to wage war versus the uh the fertile plains of Central Europe and Italy.
0: Yeah, I, I think oftentimes people forget that for the majority of history, it's not the battles that produce the most deaths. It's the, the after actions, the marchings, the yep, the disease, the disease, exactly what I think is the most major commonality between Napoleon and Frederick. They were both detailed control freaks. They were
1: uh, almost to a, an insane level. But, you know, I think that's they're both great men and they had a lot of brain power to say, all right, well, I know where this corps is with this many troops and this number of cannons, and I know where that one's supposed to be at this hour. And they just had a great mind for organization, and had a great staff working under them that could keep up with their. You know, they were both workaholics. They, the staff underneath them, you know, were probably like uh, Marshal Berthier, who was like his chief of staff, worked at some point days on end without sleep just to keep up with them. So, I think, yeah, you had to have an organizational mind to project your empire and carry on a campaign for. You know, years at a time as both men did.
0: Yeah. And and that brings me to another point that I hadn't thought of before this discussion, but these men are divided in minds. They have a political side and they have a military side. How do you think either Napoleon or Frederick, uh, I'm assuming since you have more experience on on Napoleon, you would talk about him. But how do you think he would fare if he had to only focus on one or the other?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Because, People are always like, oh, you know, Duke of Wellington was a better general. He beat Napoleon. And, you know, and I always counter, well, the Duke of Wellington had one job, which was an army job. He was the head of the army at Waterloo and the head of the army in Spain. And he didn't have to worry about political ramifications and alliances and his people at home. He just had to worry about his army, right? So I think Napoleon had to do all those things. He had to be a military leader. He had to worry about the politics of his country. He had to worry about alliances with, you know, other countries. So I think if he could have just focused on, like you were saying, just being a great general or just being a great politician, I think he could have done even more than he did. And it is it is amazing that he did as much as he did being basically the dictator and emperor of a country, because you don't... <laughs> Generally, you don't see the leader of a country out in front of a, a firing line, you know, getting shot at and have cannons fired at you. That's pretty rare. So I think that he was willing to do that. And, you know, also in his mind, thinking about alliances and politics and strategy, it was just remarkable what he could do with his brain. Oh, I 100 percent agree. There's only really a few figures that have that
0: total political and military control. I can think of no. Frederick the Great, Frederick the Great, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, as as a yep. few examples. But
1: it's a great point you bring up. That's a hard job to to do it all like that, you know.
0: I, I'm very thrilled about this discussion. <laughs> Me too. This is
1: pretty cool. So yeah, Frederick the Great, uh, one of the, the greatest of all time. Very impressive man. And um, his heir, uh, I believe, was the man Napoleon fought in Prussia, right? His his son. Uh who's it was his uh, great nephew, I do believe. It was King Frederick Wilhelm II,
0: then King Frederick Wilhelm the Third. Because you can't have too many Frederick Wilhelm. No, I know it's hard know. to keep track of them though. Yeah. Ooh, uh, another topic that I just thought of was that the style of warfare between Napoleon's time period and Frederick's time period are fairly different. We call the 18th century the period of limited warfare, in that the goal of kings and generals at the time was to keep the army intact, not necessarily to destroy the enemy.
1: Yeah, it was like a maneuvering. It was like a chessboard, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you think Napoleon would have fared if he were set back in that timeline? Of just limited warfare. Or do you think his character was so completely antithesis, antithetical to yeah. that yeah it was impossible for him to just...
1: Yeah, I don't think he could have uh, just adjusted to that. You know, he, he liked to read what other generals did, but it doesn't, didn't mean he'd like to do what other generals did in a similar circumstance. So he believed in total war and the way to win a total war was knocking out the enemy, absolutely annihilating it. Combined arms, infantry, cavalry, artillery, and then when the opposing army fled you sent in the cavalry to finish them off. Like he didn't believe in this maneuvering and hoping they would sign a peace treaty or retreating in a gentlemanly manner. You know, he wanted to annihilate them from all sides. So I think just his way of doing it uh, was different. You know, his idea of, you know, getting a central position, wedging yourself in between two armies and then defeating both in detail was his revolutionary style. And I yeah, I don't know if he would have, if he would have been permitted to use his type of warfare 50 years earlier that's a good question
0: i just think the the two time periods are so very interesting and that the french revolution creates this huge energy and and also violence uh, throughout europe and we're still living with that kind of ramifications today and yeah if you look back into the 18th century it's it's a complete different style of politics, warfare, what have you, and I find it interesting yeah. that you can put Napoleon as the the merger of those two things.
1: Yeah, he is. He he really brought in the the modern war as we see modern warfare as we see it now. Almost small, uh, self contained, heavily armed units that can live off the land and basically subsist on their own without resupply needed. You know there, that is kind of like modern warfare now. You want to have. Small groups with heavy amounts of firepower that can live off the land or live live on their own without being resupplied and get deep into enemy enemy territory that way. So, yeah, you bring up a good point. Yeah, that's fascinating that they're two great men, had two different ways of doing things, but were both successful. And that that brings me to the idea of legacy.
0: This this will probably be my final question here. Mm. But um, what do you think... Napoleon's legacy was on Europe.
1: Yeah. I mean, legacy would have to be Napoleonic code. The greatest example I can give in some parts of Europe, if you stole your neighbor's cow, you know, you would pay a fine. in other parts of Europe, if you stole your neighbor's cow, you'd be executed. There was no standardization of law. It just depended on what part of Europe you were in. And I think, you know, him having Napoleonic code and standardizing codes and laws and schools and banks, like, I think that's a legacy that lives on today. And I think a lot of countries still use that Napoleonic code to make sure that, you know, no matter where you are, there's some legal precedent and some legal structures in place. So you're not just at the whim of whoever the judge is, you know, there's got to be some sort of legal precedent as well as a, a financial bank and centralized bank precedent to have a good monetary system in place for these centralized government. So I think that's his overall legacy. If you want to get into, you know, military strategy and you know people study both of our, both Frederick and Napoleon in military schools to this day for sure there's a legacy there as well so i think it's a multifaceted answer that his legacies are many and they're still being looked at today yeah
0: i think that's one of frederick the great's largest failures he never really put out that kind of standardization that uh, napoleon was able to do. He certainly created law codes during the beginning of his reign, but as he grew older, he tended to become a little bit more senile and basically uh, decided to skirt around the law, do his own personal interpretations on it. No, I I think it's very interesting that Frederick the Great is able to uh, create the precedent of having his army be organized like a machine.
1: It was. And, you know, the infantry knew where they were supposed to be. The cavalry knew where they were supposed to be and the artillery as well. And it's a shame the two men never got to meet each other. I think, let's see, Napoleon was born in 69. Frederick died in 86. So, yeah, obviously they probably never would have met each other, but it would have been an interesting conversation if they lived. And maybe they had it in heaven or wherever they ended up. But, you know, it's just I wonder what they would have. I think they would have been a great. Napoleon was a great admirer of Frederick. But I think if the two could have met and exchanged ideas and concepts, that would have been an interesting conversation. Oh, yeah. No, I think we could have a little bit of a precedent with uh, how
0: Frederick and Voltaire acted with between each other, like this, this uh, cat fight sort <laughs> of thing.
1: Yeah, like both brilliant men, but they had different opinions on things. Yeah, that was great. No, thank you for... I I learned a lot. Uh, I was setting up on Frederick the Great before the show, and I, I, I was really impressed by your podcast
0: oh thank you so much you No, know, i i've been uh looking at your podcast and i'm i'm so excited I, I i saw that you had uh carrie elvis on on your podcast i did that was, so, did. That was in, incredible to me uh, i i yeah. grew up watching the princess bride and
1: yeah he was a really nice guy and um i i appreciate him joining the podcast but yeah thank you yeah and we have some some impressive guests coming up. We have a few historians coming up, some other podcasters coming up, and we have some really cool episodes. So I hope your uh, audience will uh, give us a gander or give us a listen. All right. Well, thank you so much.
0: Uh, I'm so glad that you're on my podcast, and I hope that you and our listeners will, will treat you with the, with the kind reception that you deserve.
1: So <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much, Alec. And uh, it's great talking to you, bud.
0: I hope you found that conversation as engaging and enjoyable as I did. To John, I thank you for being a guest on my show and for having a very insightful point of view. To everyone who stayed till the end, I hope you can support me any way you can, whether it is reaching out on social media or financially supporting me on Patreon. Thank you all who have listened. To conclude today's episode, we will use a very Napoleonic ending. Therefore, I say... Vive l'Empereur!